0: Welcome to this edition of the NeuroPharm Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colby Burns, Dr. Pharmacy, and I'm joined by my co-host, Christopher Tony, Dr. Pharmacy. There are 4 million podcasts in the United States. We're certainly glad you're choosing to listen to this one, we hope we can give you some information and educational value on this uh, evening. We are talking about GLP-1 agonists, one of the newest and hottest weight loss drugs and diabetes drugs that has some other interesting um, indications they found in clinical literature. We are here in wintertime and New Year's resolutions are afoot, so I know weight loss is a hot topic for a lot of people, up to 20% of Americans set goals to lose weight in the coming year. So it felt like an appropriate topic to talk about for January. We're just getting over a ice storm in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, Portland area was hit pretty hard. Here in Seattle, we did not have much but cold. How cold has it been down there in Redding, Chris?
1: it's been kind of in the mid 30s most mornings and then it usually jumps up to you know the high 40s low 50s by the at the hottest point but uh we've we've had quite a bit of rain so um but luckily we haven't had any of those ice storms yet but you you never know because they (laughs) we have had them in the past so but but not as bad as uh what it sounds like Portland was going through.
0: Yeah. People were iced in their homes for several days and power outages um, in the city. So in the Lamont Valley area, but uh, they're recovering from that. And uh, now we're back in the above zero <laughs> rain, but yeah. that's okay. Yeah. One of the biggest news stories catch up on in psychedelic science. And if you're a subscriber, to the neural farm on Substack, we'll work on getting the newsletter out here at the end of the month. But one thing we had talked about in the newsletter, hadn't talked about in the podcast was the, National Defense Authorization Act was signed for 2024. This is the bill that funds the United States Military Department of Defense. This year's bill was pretty historic because it included funding for clinical studies for the use of psychedelic assisted therapy for military service members diagnosed with PTSD or traumatic brain injury. Uh, we talked about the need for PTSD therapies and active duty service members and veterans but traumatic brain injury as well is a major area of unmet need. Um, Around 20% of active duty service members will suffer a traumatic brain injury during their careers. I've seen that number as high as 30%, though. You know The figures vary on that. We did have a previous episode on psilocybin for TBI. If you want to go back to episode seven and listen to that, we discussed how psilocybin is being studied to treat people with traumatic brain injury that seems to have some anti-inflammatory effects in the brain as well as that it can rewire neural circuitry and lead to some of those neuroplasticity changes, which benefit people not just with depression and mental illness, but with trauma to the head as well. There's currently no FDA-approved therapeutic options for patients with cognitive or neuropsychiatric problems that have mild TBI. We'll be following this research that the Department of Defense uh, puts out pretty closely during the next year or two. I figure it'll take a while to get rolling. Uh, there are also, I'm sure, athletic programs and sports programs interested in this research as well. Up to 90% of professional football players, for example, have experienced some form of TBI. And we know there's some athletes like Jordan Poyer and Aaron Rodgers in the NFL who have been outspoken about their use of psychedelic assisted therapies for both physical and mental recovery from performance Other major policy changes are happening at the state level. Um, You know, we cover some of those in the newsletter and then federal level, there was this case DEA versus Agarwal in November, which is a ninth circuit court of appeals case, which ruled in favor of the petitioner, Seattle physician, Dr. Sunil Agarwal uh, ruled in his favor against the DEA uh, because the DEA denied his petition to reschedule psilocybin from a C1 to a, C2 controlled substance without providing sufficient supporting evidence, according to the ruling of the ninth court. It's unclear what the next steps in this case will be, but there could be pressure on the DEA to change its policies to start expediting review and rescheduling of controlled substances that have shown evidence as breakthrough therapy uh, for mental health conditions such as MDMA and psilocybin, for example. And Going back to regards to state-level changes, uh, Washington is proposing legislation that could permit nonprofit agencies to open psilocybin service centers to treat veterans and first responders with mental health conditions. This is Senate Bill 5977. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Um, you follow me on social media, but trying to get more support for that bill to get through the chamber um, as a legislator in Washington is in session right now. And then the northeastern states of Connecticut and Maine are also proposing legislative changes to decriminalize psilocybin. And we're in legislative season for most states, so expect more states might discuss or enact legislation to expand access. And again, just keep up the date. We'll keep you up to date with the latest research. But today, we are going to talk about GLP-1 agonists. Um, I expect most people have probably heard of GLP-1 agonists by now. This is, you know, brand names are Trulicity, Munjaro, Ozempic, kind of the most commonly used ones, Victoza. I want to briefly go over their discovery and pharmacology, uh, in case there's people listening that are unfamiliar with them still. The main use of these agents is right now for weight loss and diabetes. Chris and I, we talked about NEAR's resolutions last month, um, you know, discuss the common resolution for Americans is to lose weight. At least 20% of Americans desire to do this each year. And right now, 70% of Americans are either obese or overweight, as defined by a body mass index greater than 25. We talk a lot about the mental health and addiction crisis that is going on in the United States. Obesity is commonly described as the other health crisis we face. It's linked to a whole host of other health complications, including metabolic dysfunction, cardiovascular disease, chronic pain, depression, and potentially shortened lifespan, and definitely a shortened health span for people. So that's one of the reasons these drugs are really important. And there's also interesting potential of GLP-1s as being useful to modify behavior, which could play a role in addiction and cravings. Uh, I did mention last month about an article on GLP-1s put out by the business journal Morgan Stanley that showed that GLP-1 agonists had the potential to disrupt the entire food industry, as anecdotal research shows that 60% of users of GLP-1 surveyed reported reducing candy and alcohol consumption while on the drugs, and 40% increased consumption of fruits and vegetables, and 30% increased exercise. Walmart also put out kind of a a cryptic press release in October, stating they have data that their pharmacy consumers who use GLP-1 agonists are buying less food at their stores. Um, There wasn't a lot of detail here. It was kind of vague. I also find, on a side note, it's interesting that big companies are using and tracking healthcare-specific data to make these kind of observations. I'm sure Walmart is not the only one doing this. It's a society where healthcare delivery is becoming Sort of and big business. I'm confident Amazon is growing a pharmacy and using, you know, pharmacy data to drive sales or strategy in other areas, which, you know, to me, there's like a little bit of a conflict of interest. Um, I feel this is a argument in support of using independent pharmacies. That if you care about your healthcare privacy to use um, an independent pharmacy or other service that won't sell your data.
1: Yeah, definitely. I agree. I think um you know, these big businesses kind of overstepped the line a little bit, and uh, uh, it basically is a violation of HIPAA to use your health information uh, for non health related purposes. Um, but yeah, I know with independent pharmacies, you know, their goal is focused on the patient's well being, and they never uh, have a reason to sell your information or, um, give, give your health information to other people. Um, So I I wish that there were more independent pharmacies around.
0: Yeah. The pharmacy space is, is harder to find an independent pharmacy, but um, you know, if you are concerned about your healthcare privacy, I think write to your congressman or use an independent pharmacy to get off my soapbox on that. If GLP-1s can combat food cravings, could they uh, be useful as well at treating alcohol and drug addiction? So we're gonna get to that at the end of the podcast. But first of all, what are GLP-1 agonists and how are they developed? Um, To understand this, we need to understand the history of diabetes research. Diabetes traditionally had a very high mortality rate. There wasn't really much physicians could do to treat a patient with diabetes besides putting them on a very low carbohydrate diet which caused a lot of patients to die of starvation. In 1921, Frederick Banning and Charles Best were credited as being the first to remove insulin from the pancreas of a dog and testing it on a human. Uh, They tested it on other dogs as well, uh, and they had some success with this. The research group then expanded in the 1930s, and they were able to extract a more purified form of insulin from the pancreas of cattle and pigs. Uh, This innovation saved millions of lives, but it was not perfect because the animal-derived forms of insulin caused allergic reactions in a significant number of patients. So insulin had to be humanized or genetically engineered. So the first humanized form of insulin was developed in 1982 under the brand name Humulin. And of course, today we only use humanized forms of insulin for diabetes therapy. And exogenous insulin is really the only course of treatment uh, approved for type 1 diabetics, people who cannot produce their own insulin uh, due to beta cell dysfunction. But uh, type 2 diabetes presents a little bit differently um, due to insulin resistance. And as research on insulin development advanced, there was a parallel effort to find secretagogues or incretins, which are hormones that stimulate the body to release more insulin, which could overcome some of that degree of insulin resistance that you see in type 2 diabetes. So the first class of agents that came out were sulfonylureas. They were approved in the U.S. market in 1984, although this was about 15 years later um, than they were launched in Europe. So they were around in Europe quite a bit earlier. These agents work by stimulating the sigma subunit of the potassium ATP channel on pancreatic beta cells, uh, which to... Dumb down and explain a simple fashion sets up a chain reaction of events that stimulates um, insulin release from the beta cells of the pancreas. There's a couple limitations though of this approach. One is that the release of insulin is not dependent on glucose intake, um, you know, it just increases release of insulin regardless of how much food you're eating or how many carbohydrates you're eating. So this raises the risk of stefaniureas to cause hypoglycemia, particularly in individuals who are also engaging in either intermittent fasting or low-carbohydrate ketogenic diets. The other problem with stefaniureas is that uh, sensitivity tends to decline over time. Patients are said to become more resistant to their effects, and A1C and blood sugar reductions associated with stefaniureas tend to plateau. You know, um, The time period of that seems different from patient to patients, but it is the common theme that they'll become less effective over time in lowering A1C. There were several hypothesized reasons for this. Um, I'm not going to get into all of them for the purposes of the podcast, but again, it's a limitation to the approach of safanierias and they've really fallen out of favor. Um, Other than the fact that they're inexpensive, there's not a whole lot of other positives of safanierias when there's better agents out there. So research into other secretagogues led to the discovery of glucose-dependent insulinotropic peptide, or GIP, in 1964, and this is a hormone that releases insulin directly in response to ingestion of glucose. Glucagon, like peptide 1, was discovered in 1987 and found to be even more effective than GIP in stimulating insulin and reducing peak plasma glucose concentrations. As obviously a very rapid summary of a complex process that goes into drug discovery, I'm going to put a link in the references for people who want to read more about how this happened, but it then took until 2005 for the first GLP receptor agonist drug, Xenotide, to be brought to the U S market. And this was originally isolated from Heloderma suspectum or Gila monster venom by John Ng in 1992. So fun fact, you know, GLP one agonist from Gila monster venom, if case, uh, this comes up in a trivia question. Exenatide was initially dosed twice daily, but a once weekly injectable formulation was approved by the FDA in 2012. Uh, this was found to have a greater efficacy on body weight reduction and glucose reduction compared to the daily formulation. And of course, now there are other once weekly injectable drugs on the markets, including Ozempic or semaglutide Trulicity, or dulaglutide, and Mujaro, um, or terzapatide, which is the newest GLP-1 agonist. There's also Victoza, or glutide, which is kind of the one remaining popular daily GLP-1 injection. You know, some insurances seem to prefer that, I guess, because it's a little bit cheaper, even though you have to give it every day. And there's also this higher strength form of glutide that's marketed under the name Sexenda for weight loss. I should add semaglutide for weight loss is also available at a higher strength uh, known as Wegovi or Wegovi. So some of these have different brand names. Um, there's also an oral form of semaglutide called ribelsis. This one has to be given 30 minutes before eating or drinking for optimum absorption. So it is limited
1: by poor bioavailability. So I'm going to start uh, to talk about... And excuse me, I I am getting over a cold, so bear with me. But I'm going to talk about a study uh, that has to do with uh, manjaro or tirzepatide. Um, so this study is known as the uh, Surmount Four randomized clinical trial, and it was basically looking at the maintenance use of it in relation to uh, weight reduction in adults with obesity. And one thing I want to make clear, you know, before I start talking about this article is that they found that with type 2 diabetes, one of the reasons um, that people get insulin resistance um, in the first place is from having fat cells that uh, release certain hormones in the body that can make your insulin receptors less uh, sensitive to insulin. And so there is a direct correlation between obesity and the development of type two diabetes. Uh, so weight reduction is uh, kind of a goal of treatment um, because it, if you can eliminate obesity, you can improve, if not cure type two diabetes. So the Surmount for, uh, randomized clinical trial, it reported the results um, and like I said, it evaluated the effectiveness of tirzepatide or Menjaro, which is a um, dual-glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide and glucagon-like peptide-1 receptor agonist for maintaining weight reduction in adults with obesity. Uh, the trial involved um, 1,878 patients who had a body mass index of 27 or higher and at least one weight-related comorbidity. Um, The participants received a 36-week open-label lead-in treatment with uh, Manjaro, um, 10 or 15 milligrams once weekly, and they achieved a mean weight loss of 12.9%. They were then randomly assigned to continue with Manjaro or they were switched to placebo for another 52 weeks. And the primary outcome that they measured was the percentage of change in body weight from week 36 to week 88. So the trial found that uh, patients that received Mujaro was superior to the placebo in maintaining weight reduction. Uh, The mean percentage change in body weight from week 36 to week 88 was negative 0.5% with Munjaro 10 milligrams, uh, negative 0.6% with 15 milligrams, and 7% with placebo. The main difference between uh, Munjaro and placebo was negative 7.5%. Uh, With a 95% confidence interval uh, for Manjaro 10 milligrams and negative 7.6% for Manjaro 15 milligrams, and the proportion of participants who maintained at least a 5% weight loss from week 36 to week 88 was 92.4% with Manjaro 10 milligram and 91.8% with uh, Manjaro. 15 milligram and about 45% with placebo. So Manjaro, it also improved uh, several cardiometabolic risk factors, such as um, glycemic control, uh, blood pressure, lipid levels uh, compared to placebo. And the most common adverse effects uh, that they saw uh, with patients receiving Munjaro were um, GI related such as nausea diarrhea and vomiting um, which, which were mostly mild uh, to moderate and they were transient meaning that they didn't last uh, very long so the authors concluded in the in the study that Munjaro was effective and generally well tolerated for maintaining a weight reduction in adults with obesity uh, they suggested that, uh monjaro could be a potential treatment option for obesity and its related complications so uh, a good medication for treating diabetes but also an underlying cause of it which is obesity um however there was another trial that came out um, that basically Uh, talked about the downside of these miracle drugs. It's been shown to reduce body weight and improve uh, glycemic control, but they may also cause um, significant loss of lean mass, uh, which includes muscle and bone. Lean mass is associated with poor health outcomes and reduced lifespan, so it's important to consider the effects of these drugs on body composition and not just body weight. Ideally, we we would hope that, you know, these GLP-1 receptor agonists, you know, help lose uh, fat weight and not lean muscle weight because uh, fat is the unhealthy uh, weight that we're trying to get rid of that, that contributes to type 2 diabetes. So the the article cites the results of the step one trial, uh, which tested semaglutide as a treatment for adult obesity. Um, They found that semaglutide reduced body weight by about 15% on average, but it also reduced lean mass by three and a half percent. So this means that lean mass accounted for 23.5% of the total weight loss, which is higher than the typical proportion of 25% observed in other weight loss interventions. And the article argues that this lean mass loss is not trivial and may have negative consequences for metabolic health physical function, and quality of life. The article also points out the limitations of the available data on body composition changes on GLP-1 receptor agonists. Uh, Most clinical trials have not included body composition as a primary endpoint, and the FDA does not require it for weight loss drug approval. Uh, Therefore, the evidence on the effects of these drugs on lean mass is sparse and likely underpowered Uh, the article calls for more rigorous and comprehensive studies to assess the impact of GLP-1 receptor agonists on body composition and health outcomes Uh, the article concludes that GLP-1 receptor agonists have been celebrated for their uh, potency in reducing body mass but lean body mass accounts for an alarming proportion of this weight loss. Um, For patients without excess fat, this considerable risk just doesn't seem worth the minimal benefits. And then to follow up on that, there was uh, another trial called SUSTAIN-8 trial, and it implicated that up to 40% of weight loss from GLP-1 receptor agonists may be lean body mass and muscle. So this particular article was saying that it it could even be, you know, uh, a much greater extent of of losing lean body mass than what we had heard from the previous study I just talked about. So the second article um, basically Discusses the effects of the GLP-1 receptor agonists um, for weight loss and diabetes management on lean body mass. Lean body mass includes muscle and bone, and losing it can have negative consequences for health and longevity. Uh, the article reviews the evidence from various clinical trials that have tested GLP-1 agonist medications, such as semaglutide and. Uh, terzapatide on body composition. The article suggests that the evidence is mixed and unclear, as some studies have found significant reductions in lean mass with these clip one medications, while other studies have found minimal or no changes. So the article uh, points out that the proportion of lean mass to total body mass uh, may still improve with GLP-1 drugs, but indicates a better body composition. Uh, The article concludes that more research is needed to understand the mechanism and implications of lean mass loss on GLP-1 medications, and that patients and doctors should monitor body composition changes carefully when using these medications.
0: Yeah, thank you, Chris. And, you know, we're focusing on the weight loss side of it. Um, You know, these drugs do lower A1C. There's a benefit of them lowering A1C by up to 1.5%. But that secondary marker is for weight loss as well as lowering A1C and diabetes. So while they seem like miracle drugs and beneficial there, there's definitely some concerns about the type of weight people are losing, not just that weight is being lost, but more sort of lean muscle mass, some proportion of that is being lost um, along with fat, and that's not ideal. And patients regain a lot of this weight after they stop GLP-1 agonists, according to the most recent data. But Peter Atia, who's one of the best-selling authors um, right now, he wrote the book Outlive. Uh, he's, you know, stated the loss of lean muscle mass greatly increases the risk of mortality Uh, as evidenced by the fact that the one-year mortality rate associated with falls leading to hip fracture is nearly 30%. Uh, You know, he hypothesizes this high mortality rate is related to a progressive loss of muscle mass over time. You know, older patients that lose muscle mass tend to have uh, poor stability. Poor stability leads to falls, and then poor muscle mass leads to difficult recovery from falls. As in someone who's decompensated for years, then has a fall, and they get hurt, so this movement slows down even more, and their muscle strength declines, and they don't have enough reserve sort of to recover. That that sometimes ends up being a death sentence for people indirectly. So, in his opinion, the loss of lean muscle mass is significant risk with GLP-1 agonists um, if people are taking them for obesity. So they should do so with caution and should combine therapy with weight bearing uh, weight bearing strength training exercises in order to preserve muscular strength. Anyways, covering that's you know GLP ones for obesity, uh, blood sugar reduction. Let's also talk about for addiction. Um, we thought the science of how GLP one drugs was was pretty settled. You know, we talked about them increasing insulin secretion in response to glucose, which is how we. I've always thought these drugs have been worked and studied. Um, they also delay gastric emptying, which promotes feelings of uh, satiety or fullness. So it slows down the rate at which food and nutrients are absorbed from the gut. Um, and that can cause some side effects of intestinal blockage and postoperative ileus in surgical patients. There is now warnings and guidelines to stop GLP-1 agonists before surgery um, to minimize that risk. And there's some reports of intestinal blockage with these agents. Um, But there's also maybe other mechanisms of action for these agents, you know, talking about behavioral modifications and changes in eating patterns and addiction patterns, it appears is that those um, outcomes are not really directly linked with how the drug is working, you know, to increase insulin or slow um, gut metabolism. So we know there's GLP-1 receptors in the brain and the hypothalamus, and it's thought that activating these neural receptors may silence their reward pathway that creates positive reinforcement around the use of alcohol or tobacco or eating high amounts of sugary foods. So uh, can you tell us anything about that,
1: Chris? Uh, I'm going to cover some key points here uh, about GLP-1 agonists for addiction. Um, So as we discussed, you know, GLP-1 agonists are drugs that mimic Uh, the effects of the hormone called glucagon-like peptide 1, which is responsible for regulating our appetite, blood sugar, and insulin secretion. They're mainly used to treat type 2 diabetes and obesity, um, but they may also have potential benefits for treating addiction. Uh, Some animal studies have shown that GLP-1 agonists can reduce the rewarding effects of addictive drugs, such as alcohol, nicotine, cocaine, and opioids by interfering with dopamine signaling in the brain is typically dopamine release that contributes to the, the feelings of uh, reward and pleasure associated with addiction. So if, if these GLP-1 agonists can interfere with that dopamine signaling, then uh, it's not as pleasurable to use these substances. Uh, Also the GLP-1 agonists may reduce the responsiveness to drug-related cues and stress, which are common triggers for uh, patients relapsing uh, with addiction. And also GLP-1 agonists may work better for people who have both addiction and metabolic disorders, uh, such as diabetes or obesity, as they may have an imbalance in the GLP-1 system. Uh, However, more human studies are needed to confirm the safety, efficacy, and the optimal dosage of GLP-1 agonists for addiction treatment. Um, Currently, there are some clinical trials underway to test the effects of GLP-1 agonists, uh, such as semaglutide and liraglutide on alcohol, and nicotine use disorders. Um, There is a study of an, it's an overview of appetite regulatory peptides in addiction processes. Uh, The authors focus on four peptides, glucagon-like peptide one or GLP-1, which is the one we've been talking about, amylin, ghrelin, and neuropeptide Y. Uh, They summarize the physiological aspects of these peptides, as well as uh, preclinical genetic and experimental clinical studies that explore their association with acute or chronic effects of addictive drugs such as alcohol, nicotine, amphetamine, cocaine, and opioids. Uh, The authors also discuss the potential mechanisms and therapeutic implications of these peptides for addiction. And the main findings of their review were uh, number one that the GLP-1 neuropeptide and amylin are anorexigenic hormones that reduce food intake and body weight. Uh, They also independently attenuate the acute rewarding properties of addictive drugs or reduce the chronic aspects of addiction such as relapse and withdrawal. Genetic variations of the GLP-1 system is associated with alcohol use disorder. Um, GLP-1 receptor agonists have been tested in clinical trials for alcohol and opioid dependence with promising results. The second finding is that ghrelin and neuropeptide Y are orexigenic peptides that stimulate food intake and body weight. Uh, They also enhance the acute and chronic behavioral responses to addictive drugs, such as drug seeking, intake, and reinforcement. Genetic and experimental studies support the associations between ghrelin and neuropeptide Y and addiction processes. Pharmacological or genetic suppression of the ghrelin receptor or neuropeptide Y signaling attenuates the effects of addictive drugs. Third, they found that appetite regulatory peptides modulate reward and addiction processes through multiple mechanisms, such as interacting with dopaminergic, opioid, cannabinoid, glutaminergic systems. Um, influencing stress and anxiety responses and affecting neuroplasticity and neurogenesis in reward related brain regions. And the, f- the fourth thing that they found was that uh, appetite regulatory peptides are potential treatment targets for addiction, as they may reduce the rewarding and reinforcing effects of addictive drugs alleviate the negative consequences of drug withdrawal and abstinence, and prevent relapse. Combination therapies or different diets may also modulate the effects of these peptides on substance use. So the authors conclude that um, appetite regulatory peptides are involved in various aspects of addiction processes and deserve to be investigated further as novel uh, pharmacological interventions for addiction. They also suggest that future studies should explore the sex differences, individual variability, and environmental factors that may influence the relationship between appetite, regulatory peptides, and addiction.
0: So would you say um, at this point, GLP-1 agonists are sort of promising for addiction, but it's too soon to draw a definitive conclusion?
1: Yeah, definitely. It seems like the studies are pointing towards that, especially in animal models. And so as we move towards human trials, hopefully we can find the same same results. But yeah, I'm thinking that it, it definitely has positive potential
0: yeah and there's two trials at UNC Chapel Hill um, which are evaluating GLP ones for uh, ones for alcohol use disorder and the others for nicotine use disorder. so you know they're enrolling patients now in Phase two trials, and we'll see what happens. It is interesting to me this thought that maybe people that have underlying metabolic dysfunction might be more sensitive to their effects even for you know behavioral modification or addiction compared to people that don't have underlying metabolic dysfunction. Um, You know, uh, we know not everybody who smokes cigarettes is obese, for example, uh, or has high blood sugar. So will this be as effective in that population? I don't know. So a couple other points to mention. uh, With GLP-1 agonists, uh, delayed gastric emptying may cause drug interaction by preventing absorption of other drugs in the gut. Recently, I actually heard about a case report of a patient who ingested psilocybin mushrooms in a Oregon service center. Who was taking a GLP one drug? Uh, he said he did not experience a any effect of the mushrooms. Basically, didn't have a trip at all or an experience. But about six hours later, while he was going home, is when the mushrooms essentially hit him and he started tripping out. And it was very scared um, because he was out of the service center on the way home. You know, no support system at that place. So. We talk a lot about the importance of pharmacists screening for drug interactions prior to a psychedelic session, but this is one uh, interaction I honestly hadn't considered up to this point. Uh, you know, we focus more on the effects of serotonin receptors agonists um, and antidepressants and stimulants and other CNS depressive medications, but you know, diabetes drugs—not perhaps something we would have thought too much about, but Definitely, we'll start reading more about the interaction between GLP-1 drugs and psilocybin and other you know, psychedelics require absorption in the gut uh, and whatever I can find on this topic I'll share. And then there's also conflicting evidence on whether GLP-1 agonists either increase or decrease the risk of suicide. Uh, there's been over 200 reports to the FDA adverse events reporting system on suicidal ideation with the use of GLP-1 agonists and about 150 reports to the European Medicines Association, which is the um, European version of the FDA. The FDA uh, completed initial review of this topic uh, earlier this month. They did not find any causal link between GLP-1 agents and suicidal ideation in this review, uh, according to the press release that came out. But again, that's an initial review. They're still going through the data and looking at things. And the EMA is also in the process of completing its review. And I literally read conflicting articles in the same week about GLP 1 agonists and suicidal ideation. There was one study saying that it did increase the risk of suicidal ideation. Another study said actually these drugs are protective for mental health and suicide, they tend to decrease depression and anxiety. So the main point I believe is that if you experience any negative thoughts while on a GLP 1 agent, let your healthcare provider know immediately and make sure that is reported to the FDA that we continue to collect data around this issue. Um, you know, it's not, again, they have CNS effects that we know of. So there's potential for mental health concerns, but this issue appears unresolved at this point, still something under investigation. We covered a lot of material here today, you know, GLP-1s are... A lot of people are using this drugs. And it's a big topic, um, you know, fits in a little bit to mental health as well as wellness. And we talked about some of the side effects and risks, but again, not meaning to completely bash these drugs in their place in therapy because um, certainly for diabetes, they have shown tremendous efficacy. But again, making sure we're balancing the efficacy with the risks and side effects so people are aware of what those are. Well, that's all. That's all we have for now. Um, thank you for joining us tonight. And next time, we're going to be talking about mescaline, which is kind of one of the last psychedelics that we haven't gotten into. Um, one of the classical psychedelics, I should say. So, stay tuned for that. And then, as we promised, the endocannabinoid system, THC, CBD, all that will be in the near future as well to break down how those drugs work and the receptor targets work and the whole system and pathways. Very Complexes. we know, cannabis is a plant with over a thousand phytochemicals. THC and CBD are the most common ones. And we're learning about more CBD derivatives like CBG and CBN, Delta-8 THC, Delta-9 THC, Delta-10. It's a very confusing world out there in cannabis. So stay tuned for our discussion about cannabis. But again, next time we'll be talking about mescaline first, so we can jump back to that and sort of finish off our classical psychedelic series. Anyways, make sure to like and subscribe, leave a question or comment if you have any, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. This podcast is presented for educational and informational purposes only. As licensed pharmacists, we do not advocate for the self-administration of products designed to be given only under medical supervision, nor do we recommend for or against the use of products listed as Schedule 1 under Drug Enforcement Administration guidance, nor do we recommend using prescription-only products that have not been prescribed to you by a licensed prescriber. We assume no responsibility for any legal repercussions that may occur to the individual after the use of federally illicit substances. Thank you for listening and for your continued support of the Neural Farm podcast. Did you know we have a newsletter and blog? Go to NeuralFarm.substack.com to subscribe to the newsletter and blog. We find a variety of topics around the field of alternative mental health, including one I mentioned about seasonal effectiveness disorder recently, as well as many other topics. The newsletter covers trending topics in psychedelic science research, regulation, and policy. That again is neuralfarm.substack.com. Go there now, like, and subscribe, and keep up the latest updates.